Hello and welcome back to episode two of season two of All About Aid, the podcast and blog brought to you by For Bucks Rain Barrels Project at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. As you know, I'm your host, Robbie Venus, and this week I'm really excited to bring to you my conversation with Dr. Enoch Denchi. So for those who may not know, this past year I've been a part of the Queen Elizabeth Scholarship Advanced Scholars Program, which is a scholarship that sends Canadian scholars to universities throughout Africa, as well as African scholars to universities throughout Canada. And Enoch was one of the scholars that came from Ghana to my university at Carleton in Ottawa to conduct research for several months under supervision of some of the Carleton professors. And during this time, he was willing to sit down with me and talk to me a little bit about his research, which I found absolutely fascinating. So Enoch holds his PhD in chemistry from the University of Ghana, which is where he currently works as a lecturer and researcher. And he focuses mostly on agricultural chemistry and nanotoxins, and specifically those that are relevant to crops that are grown within Ghana. He's a really articulate and intelligent individual, and it was so much fun to get to know him as a person and also have the opportunity to sit down and talk to him about some really interesting stuff. You know, we really looked at the details of the challenges that are being faced in Ghana and their agricultural sector from a very technical perspective. So be warned that there's a lot of technical chemistry jargon that's in this episode, but if you can bear through it, I found it just absolutely fascinating. And he's just such a great person to listen to and hear his story. So I hope that you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed my conversation with him. And if you want to learn more about him, you can go to the Carleton University website and find Queen Elizabeth Scholarship Advanced Scholars Program and search through to find people where you can find a profile on Enoch to learn a little bit more about him. He's also available by email at edanky at ug.edu.gh if you ever want to come in contact with him and learn a little bit more about what he does. So now it is my pleasure to bring to you my conversation with Dr. Enoch Denchi. Hello and welcome back to All About Eight. I'm Robbie Venus and I'm sitting here with Enoch Denchi. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Venice. So I want to uh, begin today by just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what your background is and how you got involved in whatever you are involved with. Okay, thank you, Robbie. So my name is Enoch, as you mentioned, and um, I'm from Ghana and I live in Ghana. I've, I've spent all my years um, living and studying in Ghana. And currently I am faculty at the University of Ghana at the Department of Chemistry and I research primarily on the environment. So you could say environmental chemistry. So, so chemistry has been my background and in general science growing up as uh, a young boy in my village in Ghana. And I have always been fascinated with science and the role that it plays uh, in our society, particularly in food and agri. So I decided to take up chemistry because um, I really loved chemistry. And um, 
And what was much more fasc- fascinating to me was um, how environmental issues are often neglected in our parts of the world. So um, that's precipitated my interest in, in researching on issues on the environment. How big was the community that you came from that you were born into? It's a small one. <laughs> it's it's that small one, less than uh, a thousand at the maximum, you know. So it's it was a quite small and remote community in the eastern region of Ghana. Um, there's um, a place we call the Quill. Um, so I'm from the tribe, the Quill tribe, and we are known to be on the mountain hill. I'm sure probably people might be more familiar with the Ashanti Kingdom. It's, it's believed that the Quills moved up, uh, Ashantis who moved on top of the mountains, um, largely as a strategic measure against war. So they climb high up the mountains and stay up there so that when, um, uh, hostile forces are coming in, they can see them from afar and then heal stones at them and so on. So that's, a bit about my lineage. Yeah. <laughs> so you started in this small, I take it rural community, as you said, by the number of people. So then how did you make your way into academia, into a professor? What was the path? I'm sure that you were uh, one of the few from your community that probably reached such high levels of academic success. So I'm wondering, what was the process from starting in this small rural community and then getting into a faculty position at the biggest university in your country? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> well, the way you mentioned it, it sounds like, well, it, it wasn't well thought out. It was just um, as a young man, you're supposed to go to school. And our parents really, really didn't believe so much in school, but you had to go because everybody was going to school. Um, the farm was the main thing. And um, even after school, you come back from school and go back to the farm. And that was the norm. During um, um, weekends, Saturdays, the whole day spent in the farm. You know, So that was how we were brought up. But normally the way parents see it is this way. You go to school primarily to avoid coming back to the village to farm. So the main idea at the time was to go to school so that you can get what we call a white collar job, as in um, the kind of job that you don't, you would, you can wear a white shirt, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, to be in an office. So that was the idea. So I really didn't, intend to uh, be a lecturer or to be engaged in research the primary idea was to go to school so that i can avoid coming back to the farm because it seemed that um, the people who normally farm and that's the general perception i mean which is well i mean to our credit it's changing now that um, those farmers are people who couldn't make it in school so that is how it began. Not necessarily that I was, I never really considered I was going to be teaching. Probably my parents were also disappointed that I ended up teaching because, uh, in our parts of the world, when you read science, people expect you to be a doctor, as in a medical doctor. Yes. So, um, maybe because it's, um, it's, 
because people are quite vulnerable when they are sick and our healthcare system is not that good. So if you have a relation in the family who is a doctor, it's seen as a good thing. So they wanted me to be a doctor and I disappointed them, you know, but I'm happy with myself. (laughs) Well, you'll be a doctor of another kind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you're saying that your family are farmers. Do you feel like that is really what kind of drove you towards concentrating on the agriculture sector and the chemistry of the agriculture sector? Like, how do you think that your upbringing played a role in the field that you chose to study? I, I, I absolutely believe that it played a vital role. Uh, perhaps not consciously, unconsciously. I, I thought I was probably more more the agri center uh, endeared itself more to me probably because of my upbringing um i i was in the farm virtually every day and uh, i know how to weed very well you know and yeah i'm talking about using the hands using your hands to weed and so on i'll tell you a story about in my secondary school where normally when you are punished it's it's to weed so there was um you have seniors and they tend to bully us a lot. I mean, everyone does it. So, so I went there in my secondary school first year and there was a senior who wanted me to wash his clothes. And that's done. Yeah. That's done quite often. Yes. Now, um, I, I, I hate washing. I really hate washing is the thing that I hate most. So this senior says, if you are not going to watch for me, then I would punish you. And punishment means go to weed. And I told him, yes, I prefer that, you know, because <laughs> I'm good at it. So he was surprised, you know, because he was coming from a more affluent part of the country. So he gave me a place to weed. And I stood there and started weeding. <laughs> and I, I was weeding so admirably to him that he said, no, stop. Where are you from? You know, <laughs> so, you know, but just to illustrate the points that it's, it's, I have grown up in the farm and I'm used to all the farming activities and so on. Of course, there are things that now I think that we, we can't change about the way we farm and our general perception towards farming and so on. So invariably, all of these uh, culminated in me working in agric, um, yeah, agriculture and, and food production in mm-hmm. general, yes. So what, how do you think that that experience like, of working on the farm and working with your family on the farm as well, how do you think that that informed the way in which you conduct your research? So now that you're researching within the agriculture field, do you think that your upbringing and the, your experience actually on the farm plays a role in the lens through which you view your research? Do you see them as connected at all? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, I believe so. Um, unfortunately, we have... We have farmed in the same way that our parents and our grandparents used to farm. Um, and particularly in the very rural areas, nothing much has changed. So there hasn't been much progress. I mean, you can talk about some form of mechanized farming and um, uh, newer technology and um, extension officers going to places, particularly in 
cocoa farming communities to help uh, transfer knowledge in on better agronomic practices and so on. But largely in rural Ghana, not much has changed. So it's, it's the same way. So the point is that um, researching in this field, there is more empathy, more understanding of the problems, or of course the status quo, what is happening in the farms. And once you understand the problem, it, it gives you a better appreciation of how to go about um, uh, bringing in uh, alternative solutions, um, yeah, or better solutions to these uh, challenges in farming. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now we've kind of covered a little bit of uh, how we how you got here. So now I'm wondering, can you enlighten us a little bit about what your research focus has been within agriculture and within agricultural chemistry? Where have you really given your attention and why have you put your attention there? Okay, thank you. So in the past couple of years, I have been engaged in uh, or researching on pesticides in, in farming and particularly neonicotinoid insecticides in cocoa farming. And the reason why I decided to do this is simple. Um, first of all, well, Ghana is the world's second largest producer of cocoa beans. Well, I mean, worldwide, you know, we're only second to Ivory Coast, which is our neighbor. So together with Ivory Coast, Ghana, Ivory Coast, we produce more than 60% of the world cocoa. But in terms of quality, Ghana's cocoa, it's reputed to have the best quality. And that's at the moment, I am not saying it's, it's a widely believed um, um, uh, fact here. The, the cocoa sector in Ghana, it's very, very important. There's a saying in Ghana that Ghana is cocoa and cocoa is Ghana. Um, cocoa has served as the main backbone of the economy. I mean, right from... I mean, probably even before we became independent, uh, in, in the, as and since we became an independent country, and it's contributed so much in terms of our GDP by providing jobs for majority of farmers and by contributing uh, income, you know, um, lots of um, foreign foreign income to the country. So currently, in terms of um, uh, foreign income, the cocoa sector, it's the third largest in terms of uh, the income where, I mean, for, for the economy of the country. So it, it's really important to the country. So you can understand why we say Ghana is cocoa and cocoa is Ghana. Um, the, the cocoa sector provides job jobs for more than 800,000 farm families. And here, this is not, I mean, we're not talking about farmers. We're talking about farm families. And in most cases, these farm families could be in excess of 6, uh, 10, and so on. You know, so all of these people are all engaged in cocoa farming. So it's very important for our economy. Now, you know, again, in our parts of the world, um, the warm environment is not only 
well, we don't like it all the time, but it's it's I I I think it's a bit better than uh, to have snow for several months, you know, and so on, you know. <laughs> but so do the insects. So they love our kind of environment, and um, it's been a challenge. So we've had lots of. Um, We've had low yields, some of which can be attributed to these insects. So we tend to apply a lot of insecticides in cocoa farms. In the past, we've had challenges because farmers often would apply unapproved insecticides and sometimes often banned ones on the farms. And to mitigate this, the government decided that, okay, we are going to help provide these insecticides at at virtually no cost. So in Ghana at the moment, um, these insecticides that are applied on cocoa farms are free. So they are either given to the farmers for free to apply or sprayed on all cocoa farms in Ghana. So we tend to use a lot of these insecticides. And one of the major ones that we tend we use a lot in Ghana is neonicotinoid insecticides. And I mean, admittedly, we are not, we don't just use it the most in Ghana. I mean, worldwide, it's the most widely used class of insecticides and it shares at least 25% of the insecticide markets, given the fact that there are several different class. That's, that's, uh, um, uh, different, several different classes. That's a huge, uh, chunk of the insecticide, uh, industry. So we tend to use that a lot. However, um, there hasn't been much research on neonicotinoids in the country, um, despite our intensive and widespread use of this um, type of um, insecticide in Ghana. So I, I decided to look at them, particularly, um, it was particularly during the time that in the European Union, there were concerns about the effect of neonicotinoid insecticides on bee health. And that is what got me involved in working on neonicotinoid insecticides. So can you explain a little bit about how the insecticide works and why there would be a problem for bees? Wonderful question. So um, neonicotinoids are relatively new. They are relatively new compared to other classes such as organochlorines, uh, methyl carbamates, uh, organophosphates, and so on. They have huge advantages, and probably that's what has gotten them um, to be used so... I mean, uh, they are widespread use throughout the world. So, they, first of all, they are, they are less uh, toxic to mammals compared to other classes such as organophosphates, for instance, um, they are also highly effective. And, and for instance, um, in Ghana, people, the, some of these organ- organochlorines that we were using, like DDTs, which tend to stay in the environment for so long and so on, um, some of these uh, neonicotinoids are far, far more, sometimes 100 times more effective than these organochlorines. So they are very, very effective. But one of the major advantages, it's also the fact that 
they they have a wide array of application methods so they can be applied in terms of the um as uh, in the irrigation water they can be applied as uh, with seed treatment they can be used uh, applied in the soil they can be sp- sprayed um yeah foliar treatment and so on so all of these methods have enabled them to be widely used in several crops um, with these several methodologies, but probably the, the probably the more uh, the most important advantage of these um, neonicotinoids is the fact that they are systemic in nature. So once you apply them, they get into the plant, into the xylem, and travel to various parts of the plants where they often tend to provide long-term protection against uh, piercing and sucking insects. And often those are the major insects in cocoa production in Ghana. Um, ironically, that advantage of uh, as a plant system, getting into the plant and staying within the plants to protect it, that is probably what is accounting for its danger to uh, or perceived danger to bees. So what happens is that once it's sprayed or applied, it gets into the plant and, you know, um, within the plant, uh, some of these may travel to the flowers, to the nectar, uh, pollens and so on. And that's where bees may come pick it up, you know, as they transfer pollens from uh, flowers to flowers. And that is seen as the danger to these um, pollinators. So what's the uh, effect of these dangers so these bees let's say are undergoing toxic effects so i i take it that there's been uh, a visible decline in the bee population so can you highlight a little bit about why that is an issue why is that something that you have to care about in cocoa farming in ghana (laughs) okay good one so i so I'll, I'll take it from two angles. Um, I remember when the news came of the possible danger of neonicotinoids to bees, the Cocoa Board, that's a cocoa organization in Ghana, came out to say that um, bees don't pollinate um, cocoa. And um, that is almost wholly true, you know. So the because research has shown that the major pollinators in in cocoa are not bees; they are midgets, um, which are these very tiny insects in uh, in forests. Yeah. <clears throat> However, I mean, since we don't have a cocoa atmosphere, and um, largely it's the insecticides are sprayed on cocoa farms within the Ghanaian environment and we cannot say that we don't have bees and uh, I mean in some cases you have a cocoa farm here and then maybe a maize farm or another crop around and so on so largely they may get in contact I mean the bees may get in contact um, with these um, insecticides however let me say that um, there has been I'm not quite sure there the right words to use here but there's been science the the research have not really been unanimous on um these effects and that is where that is what has provided a bit of room i mean for um some to to suggest that probably um 
the ban or um, hastening to avoid the use of neonicotinoids might not be the the right measure. However, um, in Europe, the belief is that if even there is uh, there is um, a possibility, then exercise exercising caution it's better, you know, than the regrets that or than otherwise, you know. So the the science there's been a whole lot of dispute with the science or the the actual effects of these neonicotinoids on bee health. The arguments have been that. The levels that have been tested in most experiments are not failed realistic levels. So, uh, so possibly these levels are probably higher than what bees may be actually exposed to. But again, the science has also been able to show that, um, some of these effects may not be toxic or may not be acutely, uh, may not show acute toxicity, but it could be chronic and it could impair motor uh, function and other sublethal effects. So it may not necessarily kill them, but if it impairs their coordination and prevents them from going back to their colony, that in itself is a problem. It could be, they've also, science have also shown that it could be a reproductive uh, defects and so on. So largely, um, um, there hasn't been so much consensus, but the overwhelming body of literature suggests that there are possible, um, effects of neonicotinoids on, um, bee health. And of course, whilst they are not banned in Europe, uh, whilst they are not banned in the, in North America, in Europe, there has been a partial ban and, uh, quite recently, the, is believed that there's going to be a, a full ban and so on. And let me be clear, um, not everyone is happy with this. The farmers in uh, Europe are complaining and their major um, complaint is that there is no alternative currently. And the fact that um, they believe that the partial ban has not led to any credible um, increases in the and the population of um, bees and so on. Uh, probably the better question is that uh, where is the alternative to bees as well? You know, so if there's no alternative to neonicotinoids, what will be the alternative to bees? And what has the research said about um, the species diversity of the bees in terms of their interaction with neonicotinoids? Because I know that, you know, there's, I think, over a 100 species of bees throughout the world uh, maybe more. And they, though, of course, they're all part of the same family. I'm sure that the slight genetic differences must play a role. So is there more evidence towards bees in certain areas versus other areas? Good. So, um, again, I, I, I would admit you probably will be more knowledgeable of, uh, I mean, than me on, uh, in terms of the species diversity of bees and so on. Yeah. But what I would say is that um, the science primarily looked at two main types. There's the the bumblebees, of course, the, the again the wild bees, and the the ones that are held in colonies. You know, um, I I I would admit that I haven't really looked at the bee diversity in these um, um, body of evidence, but largely. It's quite clear that it's covered all available bees that are uh, commonly 
involved in pollination. And now the science is also currently looking at not just bees, but other non-target um, organisms, you know, different arthropods that may possibly be affected, not just about, and uh, not, not just by neonicotinoids per se, but also other species. But I, I like the question that um, you, you asked about the fact that possibly are there other, some species of uh, bees, for instance, that probably may be more uh, resistant to these than others and so on. And that's a question that science is trying to find. Um, in in some cases, we have found that you could have that, okay, um, these species of bees in probably in Africa or in Australia or somewhere else might be more resistant or maybe they do better <clears throat> under certain conditions, you know, to, I mean, than others. So the science is looking at them. But I would say that, um, and I would admit that I'm not an expert on these bee health and so on. Uh, some of the evidence have also suggested that climate change might may, may perhaps contribute uh, a greater role in the decline in bee populations than probably these insecticides. Again, there is also evidence that there are viruses that probably may be responsible for the colony collapse disorders rather than, say, the insecticides. However, um, as we say, um, these are all different bodies of, uh, of evidence available. And based on these uh, large numbers of uh, research available, the European Food Safety Organization decided that there is um, acute or chronic toxicity to bees from these insecticides. Mm -hmm. Can you go give a little bit more detail about what your specific research is within this area? So um, what are you particularly interested in finding out with your research? Okay, so in my research, primarily I, I realized that um, whilst we tend to use a lot of these neonicotinoids, data on its availability in Africa in general was very low, practically almost non-existent. And um, I didn't find any literature as to the exposure or the levels of neonicotinoids in our environment. Um, let me say this, that um, the, the bee, the concern about bee it's um, the most important points is the fact that we, we all know about how important the bees are to world food and um, crops in general. And there's one paper that has suggested that um, the the economy of bees, their, their contribution to the economy, it's in excess of about $300 billion yearly, you know, because they, they are... I mean, or general in general, animal pollination contributes. Um, um, they pollinate more than eighty-seven different crop types and several varieties, and so on. So several crops rely on these insects. Now, in Ghana, my concern primarily was this: based on the fact that we have a mass cocoa spraying exercise, 
based on the fact that it's practically free and again based on the fact that sometimes we tend to believe that um, applying a lot more insecticides is the solution i mean so insecticides will cure almost all your problems you just have to add a lot more and then it will kill all the insects for you um, that is why i decided to look at it so the next question that kind of is coming up uh, for me is that kind of despite the real impacts that can be measured right now because it seems we just kind of don't know and there just needs to be more research, which is a, a good place to be in as an academic, but yeah. a scary place to be in as a society. Yeah. But I'm wondering how we are going to, like, how is Ghana dealing with this um, overuse issue and what, how do you mitigate that? Because that seems to be uh, really at the root of this is, and you've mentioned it a few times now. So maybe can you highlight a little bit about what efforts Ghana has to, to reduce the amount of pesticides that are being used? And how do you make sure that there's a healthy application versus the overuse and oversaturation of the crops with a pesticide that we essentially don't really know what its implications are. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good question. And going forward, that's what we have to be thinking about. I would admit that, I mean, Ghana is doing well in trying to mitigate this um, particular situation in terms of the fact that currently there, there are a number of um, agric extension offices who are primarily posted into cocoa farms and in um, cocoa farming communities and educating the farmers, you know. So, again, I would also like you to understand that from this point of view, that to the farmer, these insects are bad. They are taking away my crop and my livelihood. So, in sometimes in anger, I apply, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to apply a lot more just to kill them, you know. So it's almost like, you know, out of anger. And again, let's also remember the fact that these insecticides now are free, or virtually free to the farmers. So they don't come at much of a cost, you know, to you. So applying them a lot more doesn't, it's not too detrimental to the farmer because he feels that, okay, this is a win-win situation. I applied this, I killed the organisms. Again, I'm not paying for it, or at least not directly anyway. So I, I again, alluded to the fact that this free application primarily came in to stop the use of unapproved pesticides okay so once they are available then people would not have the need to use banned and up unapproved ones so it, it came in to solve a problem and in itself it's now tending to be a problem the fact that this is also approved that the cocoa research institute in ghana approves of the use of these insecticides also tend to instigate some a bit of the misuse people don't feel guilty because oh the authorities they like this they have put their stamp on this you know that is okay for us to use and so on so even though there is a recommended amount that or application rate and so on people feel that okay it's recommended so we can just apply so 
to directly answer your question, the education is what is important to let the farmers know that this is not right. You can't just keep applying. And again, the fact that the misuse is costly, again, it harms the environment. Because in my research, I also found out that these neonicotinoids in general are quite polar. And because they are polar, they are water soluble. And so when you apply them that much, keeping in mind that they are basically going to work as plant systems, when they, when they get into the environment, in, into the soil, and it rains, they are easily leached. So applying so much of it doesn't make so much, uh, excuse my word, sense, you know, because they are going to be washed away, which also brings um, the challenge of them being washed into underground water bodies and surface water. So the fact that farmers have to be educated on the fact that applying this incorrectly inefficiently it's not only wasting of money it's not only yeah it doesn't only contribute to the wasting of money but also it's harmful to the environment and once they get to understand that it will help another measure that i believe would help also it's as you refer to here the carrots and the stick here um if um, we do a, a lot of quality control in cocoa. That's that's one of the reasons why Ghana has the best uh, cocoa in terms of quality. So if we can bring the quality control to the farmers to let them know, among this farming community, this farmer provided the best cocoa in terms of quality. The pesticides were virtually zero in there. They were low and so on. And because of that, because of what farmer A has done by having high quality cocoa, we're given this incentive, this reward. And that would also help, you know, for the, uh, the farmers in ensuring that they, they apply this, these insecticides, although free, in, in more efficient ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems to be the going answer to all questions is we just need to educate people. People need to understand what's happening. Uh, I, you know, I see that it's a huge element of my research as well is that how do we convince people to change their behaviors? And it's just, well, they need to know that what they're doing is not the appropriate behavior. And there are, there are alternative behaviors that would be more beneficial to them and to the people that deal with the consequences of their actions. What are your thoughts on the, on promoting organic farming? Is that something that is a reasonable option within Ghana? Yes, yes, very much so. Um, but just before I come to that, um, um, again, what we were alluding to the education. For me, personally, I believe that often people are looking out for what do I get in return for doing the good thing? And as silly as that may sound, um, that's, that happens to be the thing that people often ask about, you know? So what do I get if I do the good thing, if I could do something good? So that's why I mentioned the reward system so that we acknowledge that these farmers are doing something good. We reward them. And that 
provides very good incentive for other farmers. But often when people are not rewarded for doing the good thing, even though it benefits them, they feel that, okay, I don't have to bother, you know. So in for organic farming, it's taking place in Ghana. There, It's, it's, it's a niche market and not so many farmers are engaged in it though. But I think that largely because there is demand or a market for it uh, in Europe and elsewhere, uh, currently, uh, lots of farmers are getting into organic farming. Admittedly, they may not get the yields that conventional farmers are getting, but the fact that they get a premium on their um, fruits or what they are produce serves to help or mitigate that uh, lower yield. Uh, maybe, and, and organic farming is being promoted and it's it's currently, well, we are not so much big on organic farming as a crop or produce that would be consumed locally because I guess there isn't so much market for it there. But I think, again, as well as uh, considering the advantages of organic farming and so on, the question often has been asked about how efficient organic farming is, you know, and, and, and all of that. Well, in Ghana, we've not gotten there yet. I think the point is that if there is a demand and um, there is a market for it and they are rewarding to pay extra for the lower yields, then people are willing to engage in it, yes. Mm-hmm. But like I said, for other markets, not our local markets, unfortunately, mm-hmm. yes. What do you think about the fact that your market and practices in Ghana's agriculture is so dependent on the cultural and social desires of the West, of Europe and North America, that they want something, so Ghana has to just comply? What do you think about the fact that there's that kind of dynamic relationship between the West and Ghana in terms of what they can do within their own country it's a very interesting question (laughs) so you know um particularly with the cocoa scenario cocoa case in 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 ghana i have often wondered um about who the cocoa farms belong to i mean who do they actually belong to because largely when you consider it we get the income from it which is good but we basically don't own it. I read this article that talked about the concept of um, borrowed lands also. So, for instance, you can have, let's say, in Europe or North America, where they have virtually, they own the lands, say, in Ghana, because almost all the cocoa, and, and keep in mind that um, about 36%, almost 40% of the cropped land in Ghana produces cocoa. So it's almost like Europe owns so much of the land in Ghana because we have dedicated it to cocoa production for their market, you know. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and again, what is often a bit depressing about this is the fact that our governments um, take loans in lieu of the cocoa that we are about to harvest. So in late terms, um, we're saying that even before the cocoa beans <laughs> gets to the market, we don't own it. On the trees, they are already bought by money that we have gone to take from the Europeans and so on. So it's it's a regrettable situation. And um, uh, But again, I can understand. Um, government needs money 
for stuff and they need it quickly. And um, so they go for it and there's a market for it and so on. But largely, what's the, the new government that has come into power recently has been talking about is the fact that if you consider the chocolate industry or the cocoa industry in general, it's valued about a hundred billion dollars. Okay, hundred billion dollars. Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, our neighbors, we contribute about 60% of the, the cocoa beans worldwide. And both countries share less than uh, $5 billion. So less than 5% of the chocolate industry. So that's depressing. I mean, in whichever way you consider it. So basically... I mean, uh, I know fair trade is in there to try and help, you know, with these things. But whichever way you look at it, it's depressing to think that for a hundred billion industry, um, I'm wondering what value, what, what, how much value it's been added to the cocoa beans such that we are not deserving of that 95% of it, you know? So even if we had a very fair share of this um, industry, that would go a long way, I mean, to mitigate the plight of some of these poor farmers, some of whom have not even ate chocolate in their lives before, you know, unfortunately. And they've been growing cocoa for so many years. And they receive very little because, again, where is the price of cocoa determined? Who determines the the price of cocoa? So you produce it and uh, they tell mm. you, okay, this is how much we'll pay for it. And what can you do? You mm. know, And once you don't process it, it becomes a challenge. So Do you think, think it's just poor treatment from European companies to Ghanaian and, or West African countries in general? Or do you think that they're like, is it an explicit control dynamic or do you think it's kind of just the way it's played out like what are your thoughts on that from a personal perspective so i'm glad you added the personal perspective you know? <laughs> yeah so well personally i having grown up in this system i mean as a, a farmer as a young boy i mean and we say this in my village the moment you start to walk it means you can go to the farm, you know. So, so yeah, you start to walk, you go to the farm, and you probably may not do much, but, you know. So, having grown up in this kind of environment, um, and to see the kind of unfair system being played out, I, I, I think that whatever it's accounting for these things, I mean, now... It's, it's less of a concern to me, to be honest. Um, I have stopped feeling sorry for myself and my country, you know. And I think we have to start with a value addition, you know. So if we decided that, okay, we're adding the value to the cocoa rather than exporting raw beans for the past 50 years and so on, then someone else cannot tell you about how, how much I'm giving to you. And and once you start doing that, um, I mean, process for more getting companies in here and owning them, 
you know, as a country, then we can start to harness some of um, this market that's available, this 100 billion market, and and um, have a, a better life, you know, for our, our farmers, you know, because they basically have built a country. And um, we can't go on in this direction. And no matter how we feel about the West and about the practices of the food systems and all of that, nothing much will change, you know, unless we decide to change our approach. And that's where I, I feel we should go. Yeah, well, I think that that was a great place to bring this to a close on that inspiring note. So I want to thank you so much for doing this with me. This was really fun, and I I learned a lot, and I hope that anyone at home who was listening to this also learned a lot. So thank you. This is Enoch Denchi from the University of Ghana. Uh, thanks for joining me. It was my pleasure.